sa la verità ma o ma o c'è chi riesce a sopportar ma o ma o sono tutti in guerra e non si sa che cosa mai succederà ma o ma o del mondo cosa ne sarà ma o ma o se tu lo sai dicelo un po' ma Everyone. Uh, hello, folks. We're back after another longish Wit Stillman esque, one might say, departure. It was a Stillman esque departure because I was depressed, much like the lawyer in Last Days of Disco. Yeah, but we're back. We're good. Unlike Wit Stillman, we are independently wealthy. So we do need to keep cranking these up, which brings us to where we are today. Yeah, we're talking about Wit Stillman. And specifically a trilogy of films, because that's our thing, that he made in the 1990s. His films Metropolitan, Barcelona, and The Last Days of Disco, which are all, to quote the man himself, are about failed bourgeois love. Doomed bourgeois in love. They're all comedies of manners, of sorts, about there's like two people who sort of go into this world and then they sort of play off of the world. They're all sort of movies about the sort of dynamics of class, but not just in a general economic sense, but referring to like in groups and out groups in kind of social life, basically. Metropolitan very literally is about being initiated into the dying debutante ball scene. Barcelona is about Americans attempting to initiate themselves into Spain. And The Last Days of Disco is literally about disco culture. The Last Days of Disco is about, well, The Last Days of Disco. Yeah, they're all about these particular social scenes that are mostly in the films full of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, as far as the term goes. He's been deemed Waspy Allen. I don't know if he's ever actually been called that, but he's like a Waspy sort of Woody Allen type. Even like down to the title cards of Metropolitan and Barcelona, he's definitely sort of, you can tell, inspired by Woody Allen, amongst other things. I mean, he was socialized into filmmaking before Woody Allen was cancelled. Yeah, we're not, we're not judging. He is kind of like Woody Allen, but I think that's a comparison that's perhaps too flattening. What's interesting about the way so much of his his work is drawing on the sort of earlier genre of comedies of manners and these films that are riffing on the conventions of the works of like Jane Austen and Henry James, these like fiction writers who are kind of all these novels that are really concerned with the upper class dynamics of Americans. Well, Americans in the case of James and the ascended bourgeoisie in the case of Jane Austen. All of his films are sort of structurally like those sort of 19th century novels in the sense that they're very concerned with this archaic love in the modern world to be perhaps slightly existential about it. They're all novels that are sort of about the mannerisms of class and how these scenes sort of regulate themselves and how one becomes initiated into them and also how these scenes fall apart, which is an interesting dynamic to say the least. Also, characters from the first two films actually just appear in Last Days of Disco, which is kind of funny. It's like a shared cinematic universe. 
of Spain and New York. That's the two places. Also, for a filmmaker who has this sort of proclaimed commitment to being rather apolitical, his films are all, well, in the sense that all comedies of manners are political, you don't need me to tell you that there's possibly something political going on in like Jane Austen or whatever, but the politics are very 20th century politics. The conservative streak within Stillman is very concerned about the collapse of these sort of institutions of courtship that have been outmoded by the sexual revolution. Yeah, his films are all very social class plays a big role in all of his films. Or all of these films, I should say. Yeah, they're all very concerned with, in the case of like Metropolitan, which we will get to first, obviously, the dynamics of Tom Townsend, the sort of non-conformist figure who's a fan of Charles Fourier, which is admittedly very funny to be like a, a Charles Fourier guy. Pointedly telling people you're not a Marxist, you're a Fourierist. His role in the film is he's this outsider who gets initiated into this world and shenanigans ensue with the sort of class differences of him having to like ask for money from his mom to like be able to afford a suit. But yeah, we can get to Metropolitan. It is, as National Review puts it, the third best conservative film. What's the best conservative film? The best conservative film is 2007's The Lives of Others. That's number one. Yeah. According to National Review, the best conservative film is The Lives of Others. This is a very strange list as I click on this. So essentially, Metropolitan is the greatest live-action American conservative film because the second best conservative film is The Incredibles, which is animated. This is clearly not an Armand White joint, this article. I will just say that. Um, it's pretty disappointing. If this was like an Armand White article, it would have like a Douglas Sirk movie, a Bruce LeBruce movie inexplicably. It would much better than this. I'm, if anything, marginally disappointed. So, Metropolitan is a comedy of manners, like all of these films. It's a really weird movie in the sense that I have zero sense what decade it's supposed to take place in. I feel like that's not so much intentional, but more so like a consequence of how it was made. It was low budget, so Stillman basically just shot it in like the fanciest buildings he could find to give it like a vague air of the past, but it doesn't quite say when it takes place. There's some intonations of it taking place pre-1960s. I think the atmosphere of molding the archaic in the modern is one of those things I think what Stillman is really good at. The riffing on like Austin and Henry James of this sort of motif of 19th century romantic fiction and then attempting to sort of paste that into a world where that no longer really exists in the same sense. And characters like even Nick Smith in Metropolitan towards the end is like, yeah, the debutante scene is over. This is ending. And he just leaves. I think that sense of being aware of one's own obsolescency yes yes being aware of one's own obsolescence is the kind of reoccurring dynamic of these films there's a sort of old versus new struggle for relevance it's not really a struggle like they know they've lost in some sense actually yeah that's true what's interesting here is that we see the protagonist of sorts is the outsider in this film someone who's kind of accidentally put into this dying world and hates it to a certain 
Richard Mixed but also is entranced by it. He like goes to debutante balls in the same way that I go on Twitter. I hate it, but I can't stop. Yeah, that's the way of putting it. I think the one thing that's good about structuring it around Tom Townsend is as the outsider figure, it assumes a lack of awareness as a very generic sort of expository device. It works because, you know, I too know nothing of the New York debutante ball scene in wherever year this is supposed to take place. He's a surrogate for the audience. Yeah, and I think he's the character that Stillman identifies with. To use the pretentious narratology term, Tom Townsend is the film's focalizer. He is the subject in which the entire film is kind of built around, which is different from being a narrator, but he's also sort of the narrator. But yeah, we get this attempted romance between him and this girl, Audrey, who is also in the scene. I guess we can just call it what they call it in the film, the UHB scene. The oob scene. There's a very pointed and very funny scene in the film where they're complaining about the terms that are used to describe them. When I heard there was a film called The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, I thought finally someone made a film about the truth. That's such a great line. I love Taylor Nichols, all the films he's in in this, but I think he's particularly very funny. The complaining about that. The, actually, Wasp is outdated. We should say Oob or Ooh. I love that. I think that's really funny. I also love the conversation Audrey and Tom have about Jane Austen. I don't read novels. I prefer good literary criticism. I quote that all the time. I love the fact that he's like, oh, I've read Lionel Trilling, who is a great admirer of Jane Austen, but I have not read Jane Austen, which is something that was very contemporary. In that sense. Whomst Among Us. Whit Stillman movies are about like posters before posting was a thing. Yeah, like pretending to have seen movies you haven't. I don't watch films. I prefer good film criticism. Yeah, that's what this podcast is for maybe someone out there. That way you get both the ideas of the filmmaker and the podcaster, which is fun. I think everyone's kind of pretentious and everyone's kind of annoying, but there's also something charming about a lot of the characters in the film. They all seem very human. Yeah, they're human they're very flawed individuals who are all the other thing I should say about the film is Nick's rivalry with Vic Von Sloniker where he's accused of making these things up about him and he goes it was a composite character I wasn't going to name the girl that he did this to so yeah the film is like all these films are structured around these very complicated webs of romantic intrigue it's something that you would probably need to draw a diagram I don't know if when you were in like high school you ever had to like when like reading Shakespeare you had to like draw out how characters were related to each other. It's like that diary of a wimpy kid meme that's like, this is what it's like keeping track of lesbian Twitter beef. <laughs> yeah, that's basically, that's, that's what he said in Diary of a Wimpy Kid, right? It was about lesbian people. And I think that's part of the appeal of these movies, is that sort of rich web of characters. Like, I feel less lonely watching Whit Stillman movies. These are my friends on screen. We are all talking about the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Taylor Nichols is real and he's my friend. I think all of these characters are interesting and quite complicated, if also at other points extremely annoying and obnoxious, which is the way people in their 20s are. Coming back to these films, like in my early 20s, I enjoy them much more like richly. I feel like I get it. Even in like the minor degree, if you've 
interacted with people like this, you just know it. And sometimes we are people like this. Yeah, I feel like listening to this podcast is probably a lot like watching a Whit Stillman movie, the pretentious dialogue. The pretending to have read things. I would say, like, the one thing that, I made a joke about this on Twitter, that, like, I like the Whit Stillman movies, but for me, the most relatable Whit Stillman is a Whit Stillman-inspired movie more than any of the Whit Stillman movies, which is, of course, 1995's Kicking and Screaming by Noah Baumbach. Before Baumbach got his own distinct identity. Yeah, like, that movie is basically trying to be a Whit Stillman movie, but the difference that in that movie is Bombback is making a film about people who are not nearly as rich and way more depraved. That's a film where multiple times throughout the runtime someone asks who jerked off today and everyone raises their hands. Something that would probably lack a certain propriety in the Stillman verse. Therein might lie the difference between Bombback and Stillman. In that Stillman is a bit more repressed, if very self-aware. Yeah, Stillman is a bit more repressed and is also less interested in pure evil like some of the Bombback films. The Bombback films are usually about people realizing they're bad people. I guess you could also say they both have the branching influence of Woody Allen. Yeah, but basically every filmmaker makes that type of talky comedy movie it was socialized in a pre-Woody Allen getting cancelled era, they all have a bit of Woody Allen influence, whether they want to admit it or not. I think what is really good about Metropolitan is its sense of, it's a sort of lack of sense of place. And you can go, okay, that was sort of an accidental feature of attempting to make a movie like this in 1990, but it contributes to this really dissonant atmosphere throughout the whole film. Of the other two films in the trilogy, we have a decade. And with Last Days of Disco, we have a very... Very specific time period. We're given a historical chronology alongside it. And Barcelona, we're given a decade, basically. We're given the concluding decade of the Cold War. 1980 to 1989, somewhere in there. It is fun to imagine that Barcelona takes place after Metropolitan. It almost certainly does. Like, it makes just logical sense that it does. Barcelona takes place after Metropolitan, and Last Days of Disco is... Obviously, attempting to assign a chronology for something this is inherently kind of silly but metropolitan is like before last dance of disco it's a lot like twin peaks in the sense that it's out of chronology you know? it's almost in a sort of temporal state of limbo which gives the film a very surreal atmosphere yeah metropolitan in particular because the other two have this very firm sense of place metropolitan is just new york has this sort of amorphous decaying mass well not decaying the era that these characters want to live in is decaying it's really interesting to like set a film in New York and have it be set in a vague time period because the thing with New York is that New York changed so much between decades that the New York of the 70s and the New York of the 2000s are basically different cities and here you just have New York and nothing else to go on it's very interesting yeah these characters in Metropolitan in particular are just cosplaying <laughs> on some level they want to live in this affected universe of regency era fiction and talk about 19th century utopian socialist philosophers and all of that sort of contributes to oh yeah no one is like that anymore well I mean people talk about 19th century utopian socialist philosophers and affect this sort of uh, atmosphere but like it's like kind of fan fiction um, where your parents sell you to the Sally Fowler rat pack imagine going up to your mom and being like I'm joining the UB 
scene. It's literally also about the titled aristocracy in the form of Rick von Sloniker. The conflict between the people who like Rick and the people who like Nick forms a lot of the second half of the film. Because at first, everyone is kind of together, and then Nick's contempt of Rick von Sloniker is the central dynamic a lot of the thing. And then basically, Tom Townsend inherits Nick's hatred of Rick, and that forms the concluding bit of the film where they go to the Hamptons. I think it's very funny that they take the taxi, realize that the taxi driver isn't gonna stay for them. So they just hitchhike? Yeah, they just have to hitchhike. But this is also a very positive movie in the ending. Charlie, Tom, and Audrey all turn out fine, at least implied to turn out fine. Yeah, I mean, the stakes aren't super high in this one. They do kind of get a bit higher in the other two. There's bombs go off. Bombs go off and people get arrested. This is just kind of people hanging out. It has a plot in theory, but it's mostly just interested in conversations. I mean, Stillman's films are all very conversational. But this one in particular. When I think about these films, I basically think about specific conversations from them more than anything else. You think about jokes. Also, the other difference between the Stillman verse and the Allen verse is there isn't the same fourth wallishness that you get in like Woody Allen. Nobody's gonna turn to the camera and be like, can you believe they're doing this to me or whatever? It's a bit less filmmakerly in a sense, especially in the early films. These could function as plays. Yeah, Stillman's a very literary filmmaker. All three of these films he literally wrote novelizations of. But I would say the first two, I have some more interesting thoughts on Last Day as a Disco as a film. Metropolitan and Barcelona both totally would structurally work as plays. Last Days of Disco has the added problem of all the set design. And- it's got all the set changes and also the music. And also I think the camera work is very cinematic in that film. No way that it isn't in the other two, but we can definitely get to that. But yeah, Metropolitan is, I like it. I think it's intelligent. I think it's a very good, clever film. It's not like a life changer, probably. I mean, I do really like a lot of it. There's a lot to like about it. All the characters are very funny, all the dialogue, it's all very capital S smart. It's like a type of movie I watch and I laugh at and I feel smart for finding it funny even though it's not. I mean it's funny. There's a lot of really good bits. No, no, it's funny. It's just I don't think you need to be a genius to find it super funny. And I think it's also like in the Woody Allen verse, you don't really need to know about the philosophers they're talking about or the books they're talking about to find the jokes funny. This isn't like Family Guy, where the joke is that we're referencing something. I'm not a Marxist, I'm a Fourierist. That's just really funny, even not knowing a lot about Fournier. Fourier is a fascinating subject. I like in the ending when they're in the taxi, he's like, you know, Fourier kind of was a crane. Yeah, all these movies, they're just about characters growing and learning that they need each other. It's about kind of relationships developing. The relationship that develops between Tom and Nick. Nick kind of takes Tom under his wing. I thought it was my favorite of the three until I watched Last Days of Disco. Because I had never seen any of these films before. I need to put that out there. My dad's a huge Whit Stillman fan, which I feel like is very obvious from the everything about me, the way I kind of pretend to be smart. I had not seen any of them. I was like familiar with them. People had talked about them, but... You saw the Barcelona poster in that one Seinfeld episode. I mean, I had seen like clips people had posted. I had heard the bits that are like, for everything that I did wrong, I'm sorry. But for everything that I did that wasn't wrong... God, Alice is such a Scorpio. Or I had seen someone post a bit from Barcelona, which is the text in the subtext. Yes, but no one talks about it. I think I had seen like 
one other clip that I'm trying to remember now. I don't read novels. I prefer good literary criticism. Well, you had said that and I looked it up. I think about that all the time because that's basically just my philosophy. And even the sort of literary criticism that he's talking about that is always referenced, it's not the 80s or 90s. Like, it would feel very anachronistic if a Whit Silver movie had a joke about Derrida in it, but a joke about Alfred Kazan, yeah, that's the moral universe of the Whit Stillman verse, if that makes sense. Similar to Woody Allen, and that's also since they're both kind of inculcated in a particular mid-century New York intellectual scene, even though Stillman wasn't in college until the late 60s. That moral literary universe is where he finds himself. Mary McCarthy, Alfred Kazan, Lionel Truling, basically everyone who wrote for the Partisan Review between the 1940s and 1950s. Anyone who wrote for the Partisan Review after the Partisan Review stopped being a communist publication. I should declare. That's for all you Partisan Review heads out there. Probably like three of you at most. But that sort of witty, urbane, mid-century New York is where the films shine. And then we, I guess, move away from that witty, urbane New York to his second film, which is, of course, Barcelona. Which is in Barcelona. As the title implies. As we said earlier, it's not just about any Barcelona. It's about... It's set during the Cold War. And during the ending of the Cold War. And it's about, basically, there's two main characters. There's Ted, played by Taylor Nichols, and there's Fred, played by Chris Eichmann. And Ted is this guy who's obsessed with sales. His, like, lifestyle is obsessively reading every kind of business advice book he can get his hands on. He's a salesman. That's kind of his job. I like the bit where he's like, I saw Arthur Miller's play and had the sneering contempt for salesmen. But then I had this senior-level business class where I was convinced of the deep moral value of sales. Which is very funny. And also, this is a film, it's worth pointing out that Whit Stillman worked in Spain for a number of years, basically as, like, a film distributor, effectively. As much as he's making fun of the Taylor Nichols character as this man who is morally obsessed with sales, he also is that kind of guy on some level. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Stillman is that he's very self-aware of his own sort of privilege and upbringing and general insufferableness, and he's kind of owning that. That's something that is omnipresent in his whole body of work. Yeah, and I think in Barcelona, then you also have Chris Eichmann playing Fred, who's in the Navy and comes down to Spain a couple of days before the ship is going to arrive, and he forcibly rooms with Ted, which is very funny when he's like, you know, guests start to stink after the third day. Well, you'll find I'll stink far before the third day. I begin to stink on the first day. On the first day, yes. And they have what's implied to be this sort of repressed beef that emerged with regards to kayaking, and you get the dynamic of the film, and it kind of explicitly spells out the thesis, is like, what is the status of physical beauty in love? You have Ted being all depressed and being like, I don't know if I could date an attractive woman anymore. I only want to date homely girls. What if the perfect girl happens to be attractive? Then it's different. You also get by one of my favorite quotes in the movie, which is, you're far weirder than someone who's into S&M. They have a tradition. There's movies and books about S&M. We have some idea of what it's about. There's nothing that explains you. Yeah, tellingly, Ted is secretly religious. He hides a Bible in another book and reads from it. In an issue of The Economist, is what he's reading. It's very funny. And he's reading the Bible while dancing to 1940s, 50s jazz music. Also, all of the musical taste in these films is always kind of vaguely archaic. I mean, there even is some disco stuff in this movie. To me, it's just the type of music my dad likes. These movies I just deeply associate with my dad. I associate the disco stuff way more with my mom. My dad is like a classic rock guy. 
guy. Yeah, you get Fred, comes from the Navy, and it's not really clear what his job is supposed to be. He's supposed to, like, smooth over stuff for the Navy because things are politically bad, because there's a lot of protests against NATO, and if you wear the Navy uniform in public, people call you a fascist, and, and stuff like that, and he is very offended by that. And you also get all the really good dialogue about anti-Americanism, which is interesting, to say the least. There's like an undercurrent of political tension running through these films, but like I said, Stillman is no Godard. I like the scene in Barcelona where they find the graffiti. He's like, would you rather be a pig or a horse? whatever he says fred is like going over it with a fountain pen which also that has parallels with the much joked about monty python scene in life of brian i guess that's slightly different he's like critiquing his graffiti writing ability i've never actually seen any of the monty pythons well there is an episode that's like a huge cultural blind spot which is also a thing that i know a lot more about (laughs) You get all their conflicts with Ramon, who's this cool journalist who, as a foil to Ted, is a journalist who has become enamored with the idea of physical beauty. And he writes all these articles that are about beauty. And he's also anti-American, which forms a lot of the conflict of the movie where he's talking about the AFL, quote, CIA, totally real. He gets into a sort of conflict with our two leading men. And then it sort of leads to Fred getting shot because he tells a joke to where he's like oh yeah i'm a cia agent and she tells ramon and then it gets published and then he gets shot and that's the concluding act of the movie is dealing with the consequences of him is getting shot in this one the stakes are a bit higher because he gets shot the uso gets bombed ted and fred both are in love with montserrat who's the spanish woman there aren't that many movies about inter-cousin dynamics so i think that's something i think it's the least fully realized of the movies i think it's very funny at points but i think the other two have broader satirical points to make than this one this one is just funny and sort of pleasant throughout even just comparing the endings the other two are hopefully ambiguous at best whereas this one is like oh yeah they all find love and they go back to america and they show them how good hamburgers are actually it is clever it is just as clever as the other two yeah it is clever i'll give it that i think it's the least developed probably which it sort of tries to have its overarching thing be the conflict about physical beauty yeah that doesn't really speak to me there's good stuff in it i don't think it coalesces in the same way like it's sort of in theory about that sort of conflict between lust and love it kind of then just concludes both at the end also i should mention produced by castle rock the production company behind Seinfeld. Hence there being a poster for it in a Seinfeld episode. Yeah, which had never occurred to me, but also I didn't know there was a longer version of the da-da-da-da-da that you hear at the end of Seinfeld episodes. I was like, oh shit, there's more to this. <laughs> and I guess that's sort of... Do you have any opinions about this movie, Dante? No, not really. It's pleasant. It's fun. I think we both probably have a lot more to say about Last Days of Disco. This is going to be one of those episodes where the third one is the most interesting one we don't plan this we don't plan this we want to like all the movies and I, I like this one it's it's fun i like all these movies it's just the last days of disco you can actually say the most about because it actually feels like a movie yeah this one feels like a series of witty sketches that are all vaguely themed
seem to run the same things. Whereas even Metropolitan feels a lot more ordered and a lot more pointed. Yeah, this one is just kind of things happening. Which I guess is fine. It's pleasant. It's good. If this was playing in theaters, I would see it. This one in particular, this might be a very unfair thing to say. It almost feels like a sitcom pilot. No, it does. I get what you're saying because it has a premise that doesn't really lead to a natural conclusion. Like someone's family inexplicably reuniting with them. Like it's basically like Frasier. You could really easily imagine this being done as a sort of, for lack of a better term, odd couple dynamic of Ted and Fred being kind of like the focus. I mean, Whit Stillman did do a pilot for Amazon Prime that never went through. Is that any good? I have no clue. I haven't seen it. It's just something I know. Barcelona in particular, though, Last Days of Disco is just so much a film and really uses the visual language of filmmaking well. And Metropolitan is just this very pointed novelistic thing that Barcelona feels like the kind of, it feels like a very growing pains movie between the two of them. Like a lot of sort of sophomore slump efforts. It's not like the later works that feel more developed and intelligent and know what they're doing. Whereas this is, I feel like it's a bit trying to make lightning strike twice, sort of recreate the dynamics of Metropolitan. The move to Spain is probably also an attempt at a different sort of novelty, but ultimately it is basically Metropolitan again. And you can have an issue with that, I guess. Oh, I don't really have an issue with Barcelona. It's just, I feel like I have remarkably little to say about it. You would think I would have more to say about it politically, but I don't. Which is almost an achievement. It's also like the least political of the movies, if that makes sense. I mean, they're all very political films, but Metropolitan and Last Days of Disco capture a mood and a feeling of an era, a sort of a sociology of class dynamics that Barcelona just never fully gets at. I think part of that is by nature of it being a film about Americans in Spain versus just attempting to capture different classes of Americans. He's a bit more out of his element and a bit more much like the characters sort of insecure about their American which I think is part of the comedy value of the film, of course, is these characters being horrified that everyone in Spain thinks America is just fast food and racism. America's be eating hamburgers. Yeah, like, the, the, you get the bit in the film where Fred says, oh, did you see a lot of crime when you were in Rhode Island? Which is a very funny line in the movie. It's interesting. I enjoyed it. But also, not as fulfilling as the other two. I think we've said enough about it. We can talk about the real kind of meat of the episode. Right? Yeah, The Last Days of Disco. Which I think we both quite like. The Last Days of Disco just works so well. I basically think it's a perfect movie. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's such a, it is very similar structurally and on the surface and writing wise to the other two films, but it feels like an actual directed film. You get these long sweeping shots of dance floors and it all feels very directed in a way that the other two aren't. There's some great disco scenes in Barcelona and this almost feels like an expansion of those. Yeah, that's part of it. If you want to feel really strange, you want to know what the score this film has on IMDb? I just saw it randomly. A 6.7 out of 10. That's crazy. Who's like saying like, I hate the last days of this? Like, what is there to dislike about the movie? I'm genuinely curious. I feel like it probably has a higher Letterboxd average. Yeah, it's got like a 3.7 on Letterboxd, which is like a 7.4 in IMDb. 
CD terms. Who is disliking the last days of disco? You have to remember, the people who use IMDb are fucking idiots. Okay, but still. Metropolitan and Barcelona both have higher IMDb reviews, which is kind of interesting. That's even weirder. But yeah, this is a really good movie. I don't even know, like, how to start talking about it. It opens with... Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale, two recent grads who are working in a low-end publishing firm, and in their spare time at night, they go out to nightclubs, and they kind of get involved in, like, the sort of disco scene, and they meet up with a bunch of quirky patrons of this nightclub run by Des, played by, guess who, Chris Eigeman who fakes being gay in order to get women off his back that he's slept with. Yeah, and who we later find out has, in his own words, a habitual relationship with cocaine. Yeah, you get that stuff. And then you have the friends of Dez, who are Jimmy and Josh. Josh, who's this, like, district attorney who has this sort of religious mania. And you have Jimmy Steinway, who's, like, an ad agency guy who wants to go to the disco but the club owners don't want him there. And Dez basically sneaks him in and then gets in trouble for it. Basically, it's about those five characters. Oh, and I guess Tom, who's the environmental lawyer who has got a romantic relationship with Alice, which also inspires, I think, one of the funniest lines in the movie, which is, Scrooge McDuck is so sexy. Just like the other two movies, this one does have, like, very, very good dialogue. It's all very funny. I think this one is also particularly good in the sense of Alice and Charlotte's relationship. Yeah. Yeah, this one's interesting because the other two have man-man relationships as the sort of center two characters, while this one is about two women, so that kind of is an interesting sort of shift in perspective. And also it's got Chloe Sevigny, who's always great. And it's really interesting casting of Chloe Sevigny as this sort of meek and passive and sexually inexperienced type because it's kind of the opposite of what she's sort of associated with because she's usually I mean she was in kids if you want she was in kids she's been in all these like sort of sex movies later she was in demon lover she was in the brown bunny a lot of movies that are like sexually explicit and she's playing characters that are for the lack of a better term sexually liberated while here she's much more meek and repressed and sort of unsure of herself which is really interesting so you get the sort of wit still many repression in her character and then you have her friend charlotte who is basically also in a way sort of feels to me like a jane austen character in the sense that she's trying to give advice and sort of organize her friends all around her and is trying to be this figure of wisdom and experience for alice but we kind of realize she doesn't know what she's talking about a lot of the time so you get stuff like just to call things men do sexy which leads to Scrooge McDuck is sexy which is very funny the whole film is basically as the title implies is about the kind of concluding gasps of disco in the 1980s sort of leading up to the conclusion of the second act which takes place on disco demolition night which I feel like is the key turning point in the film which is sort of interesting like that's where it all falls apart similar to metropolitan it's about the collapse of the scene everything is at the beginning everything's so like bouncy and everyone's having a good time and then it all falls apart in part because of the investigation into the club of like the drug dealing that is going on that's kind of hinted at earlier in the film it's implied and then it 
later is made explicit. The closest thing you see is like Chris Eigman sort of sniffling like like that. You get the scene where he tries to snort coffee or you get the scene early on where he takes Jimmy to the basement and shows him just all of the money that's just in bags which is interesting and like oh yeah you're supposed to know something illegal is going on here. So much happens in this movie it's kind of hard to fully explain. It's all sort of structured around the collapse of disco. The ending of the film is really interesting because you get that rant about how disco will live forever and it's like very sort of ironic that like no it won't but there's almost still that sort of sense of optimism that like things will turn out for these characters and i mean like this movie he is given the sort of historical retrospect josh is allowed to be like oh yeah disco they'll make fun of it but it'll live on all the people who didn't get it will make fun of the poses and da, 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 da. but they were never a part of it sure it'll be passe for a couple of years but then it'll come back and i mean it basically has disco is for lack of a better word cool again probably in part because of this film in some small part despite the fact that this movie did not do very well financially that is surprising according to wikipedia it made three million dollars on an eight million dollar budget on the box office which is crazy to me because this is like now such a much beloved film at least in the circles we run in i guess i guess people weren't ready for it like a movie about disco and a movie that wasn't playing into the sort of jokes about disco now i think everyone knows the disco demolition night stuff was on some level about racism amongst other things yeah it was very like politically charged yeah like about asserting a particular sort of oh this is like gay and black music and that's bad which is why i think it's very interesting that this film about disco is populated entirely by straight white characters but despite that there's still a definite authenticity to it because it uses the disco scene as a lead into these characters lives and to be fair you do see men intermingling in the big sweeping disco scenes like you see men grinding up against each other so it's not like there's a lack of acknowledgement of gay people and Chris Eggman does pretend to be gay and he does have a gay mouth. <laughs> that is maybe my favorite scene in the movie, that whole diner scene. The one scene that I really like is the scene where Dez is talking about it's women like you that um because of feminism and he's like complaining about the Kate Beckinsale character being like, Oh, you 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 call men pigs, you think we're all just turned on the moment we see a breast and he tells the story about a girl in college who took off her top and it like terrified him. It's very funny. My single favorite line in the whole film might be, you don't deserve to lick the boots of my real gay friends. I also just love all the stuff about publishing in the movie so much. The book written by the Dalai Lama's older brother, and the, the fact that they both want to be editors so badly. The whole Dalai Lama's older brother thing, that could be a Seinfeld plot line. I also really like that Charlotte, she's like, I don't really want to work in book publishing, I want to work in television. And she kind of says at the ending of the movie, she's like, I've watched television for my entire life. Life, which is a great line but yeah you get this dynamic of all these very wayward characters and you get even just the recurring framing joke of them getting unemployment i like the bit where he walks into the department of labor and you're like oh this is something serious and then it like as he walks out you see that it's the unemployment office it's a really good joke and you also get shit like the boxcar apartment or whatever they call it i'd like the character of 
I mean, all the characters are good, but I actually really like the character of Josh a lot. Yeah, he's really funny. He's really interesting. He believes in disco. He believes in disco before he had ever been to a disco. He just read about it and was like, this is the kind of place we need. And that's a very Stillman-esque type of thing, the sort of posturing. But then for him, it does become sort of genuine, even though when he does go out in the beginning, he just kind of sulks for a bit. All the characters is really interesting and you get the dynamic of him trying to protect Dez and then he changes his mind when Dez starts dating Alice. He gets jealous and tries to basically throw the book at him just because he's mad that he might lose Alice. And I do also think it's funny that then the film concludes with Jimmy Steinway moving to Spain. That's sort of, oh yeah, Barcelona is going to happen now. There's sort of a lead into it, even though there's only a very loose chronology between the three films. Because we do see Taylor Nichols' Barcelona character like have a chat with jimmy yeah you very briefly see a lot of the characters from metropolitan also and that makes the implied chronology of metropolitan even weirder yeah because you basically get the sense that both last days of disco and barcelona take place at some point in the 80s whereas metropolitan is just really ambiguous but it's like it's fun that all these people show up from the other thing you recognize i also really do like the character of departmental dan as they call him i love when he's talking about J.D. Salinger with them, and he's like, you know, Mary McCarthy and Alfred Kazan destroyed J.D. Salinger. I think this is the most developed of his movies, because it's the one that feels the most like a fully developed film. The way it uses the chronology and the editing and the direction and all these things. Whereas the other movies, to me, as we said, feel very literary. This one is obviously quite dialogue-heavy, but it feels very much like a work of filmmaking. And this is also just sort of the core Charlotte and Alice relationship. It's not really, I guess there are movies about quote-unquote female friendship, but I don't know if there are as many movies that are about like it being this realistic but also kind of vicious yeah and it's not about female friendship that's a sort of pretense for a homoerotic relationship this genuinely is a purely platonic relationship between two women which isn't to say like let women be friends without being lesbians yeah but in this film it's about this it's about that yeah and I think what makes it interesting, among many reasons it's interesting, is that they kind of hate each other on some level. They also do like each other at the same time. I mean, they're vaguely codependent because they're roommates and they can't afford to not live with each other in community housing. Yeah, and then they get the train car apartment, which is very funny. Is that like an actual apart? I honestly don't know. I guess it probably does exist. It's just very funny. But it's like a great thing to choose to set a film in because that is just forcing conflict in such a direct and literal way. And yeah, you kind of have the sort of collapse of the disco scene. Similar to Metropolitan, you get the dialogue about, like, what does it mean to be a yuppie? Yeah, this one does feel much more in line with Metropolitan than Barcelona does. This is to disco what Metropolitan is to debutante balls, essentially. This sort of idea of exclusivity and of Jimmy Steinway having to sneak in. Yeah, and then you realize that he's actually sneaking 
bringing in people from the like police to investigate all the drugs. You also get bits like the bit where I've always wanted to say book this clown, and then later in the film he gets to say book this clown. That's so good. That's so dumb, but I love it. You get the stuff about cocaine, but it, it does do a really good job of sort of capturing why someone would like disco, and I feel like that's an opinion that I feel like is now more canonized than ever because it turns out a lot of those disco songs are really fucking good, and it perfectly complements the atmosphere of the film. All the song choices are perfect. You get the sort of sense of optimism, and then you get the sense of sort of like collapse, which is interesting. And of course, then in the conclusion, you get love train as this sort of gesture of positivity, one could say. I love that. There also is, I think the other two films, they might just have been the screenplays were published, I think. But this one actually, Last Days of Disco was actually published as a novel, I think. I can see it as a novel, but I can't imagine it being as interesting without the like sort of film. It's so filmmakerly, which is weird. And I think that change is reflected even in the title cards that you see in the movie. This kind of traditional Stillman, very Woody Allen-esque title cards, you know? But then he kind of flips that and they become these like seizure inducing it's a much more visually stylish film you can tell there's more of a budget for this look and feel of the film there's such a sense of the visual and something like that it wouldn't have the same magic while metropolitan would definitely have the same magic on stage it's a movie that's very much written and directed to be a movie you probably could creatively do like a play version of last days of disco but it wouldn't capture the same atmosphere it wouldn't have the same magic while metropolitan would definitely have the same magic on stage Metropolitan is, I would say, a really, really good play that just happens to be a movie. That's a really good way of putting it, actually. Whereas Last Days of Disco is a great movie, and it wouldn't work nearly as well in any other medium. Because you can't really do the same stuff with temporality on stage, you can't really do the same stuff with all the same structural beats the film follows, and you can't do those cool camera pans on stage. You certainly couldn't do the ending on stage. It's a film that feels like a movie. It's shocking that this really, despite being always sort of critically well-received film did not do very well. My other favorite scene in the whole film is when they're talking about Lady and the Tramp. That's a really, really good scene. Or when they talk about Bambi. And just like the Jane Austen stuff in Metropolitan, it's a very thinly veiled reference to what's going on in the film and the characters are sort of using it as analogous to their own lives. Yeah, you get the, you know, actually they're just people. They aren't dogs. So stupid, that whole back and forth. But it's so funny. And it's also kind of sharp. This film, it has a 73 on Rotten Tomatoes, which to me is kind of interesting. There are some people that don't like it, I guess. I don't get it though. I think this is a really sharp and astute and certainly the best of the three. I don't get why there's some people that really, really don't like it. I guess it's their failing, not mine. But oh, it has such a sense of atmosphere, it has a sense of social class, sense of politics, a real satirical edge to it. It's just like everything you could want in a movie like this. I don't know what you could do in this that would make it better. It is the perfect version of itself. Oh, there is apparently actually a novella of Metropolitan also. It has big novella energy. <laughs> Metropolitan feels like it's adapting itself on some level, even though it is just a film. But Last Days of Disco, it's a fucking film. Much like Disco itself, it was mocked. It was mocked, it was passe when it came out, but in a few years people realized how good it was. Oh, no 